So glad to see you all here today. What a beautiful day the Lord has given us. Well, it's Easter, which means it's all about Jesus. So we're going to go ahead and talk about Jesus a little bit. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. I'll be reading from the Bible. Someone next to you with one will let you look on. But if you have one, open it up to Matthew 28. And what we're going to speak about this morning is the fact that Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which is what Easter is all about, it's why we're here, Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives us a real and absolute hope, both in this life and in the life to come. And what we understand right now is that we, Americans, are a people who are longing for hope. And we're going to talk about how Jesus fulfills that longing within our nation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. How kind of you to do that. No one else in history ever offered to pay our price except for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you so love the world that you gave your only unique son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place that we might have life for eternity. We ask that this morning, Lord, that would become very real, just as real as the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that the life he offers us today would be real and tangible and desirable, and we would respond to it. And so we ask that, God, you would speak to us. We haven't come to hear the words of a man, but the very word of God, your truth. And we ask that you would do good things in every heart here today. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as I alluded to, this last year has been a telling and trying year for the American people. This last year has been both trying and telling. We know that it's been a trying year for us. We are experiencing the worst recession we've seen in decades many decades. In March, unemployment hit the highest level it's been at in 25 years, 8.5% nationally, 12% in California. Companies that once seemed synonymous with the American dream are collapsing. Banks that we once counted on are closing. Small businesses that we frequented are crumbling. Friends and family that felt so secure are being laid off. And in the midst of all of this, we've seen extreme greed manifest in high places. We're a nation that is fighting wars on multiple fronts. It seems that there's a never-ending malaise of complex international crises before us. And what we realize, even in this last couple of weeks, is that there are multiple ideologically threatening nations developing nuclear capabilities. This is a trying time for Americans. These are some of the things that have made it difficult this year. And in addition to that, for you and I, it also happens to be an election year. Those things are evidence that it's been trying this year. But the election was telling. Because what we discovered in the election this year is that Americans have a real deep longing for hope. That was unmistakable. 
You saw the stickers, you saw the posters, and you voted. There's something happening in the corporate identity of America right now that we want hope. There's a deep longing, and it's common across the population. Even for those of us who, for because of affluence or some other reason, are just barely affected by the drama of the last year, there's still an obvious and underlying hope. Because we've discovered that we feel no more satisfied, no more whole, no more complete, and no more settled than the people that became a statistic this year. We still long for hope. We all do. That's part of the human experience. And the Bible identifies Jesus as being hope. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what is hope? What should we think about hope? How should we feel about hope? And we realize that throughout history, not everybody has felt the same way about hope, interestingly enough. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, died in the year 1900. He was the one who came up with the idea of the Ubermensch in in German, the Superman who could transcend the moral sort of boundaries of the day. Nietzsche said this about hope. He said, hope is the worst of evils because it prolongs the torment of man. It's a different perspective. Hope is the worst of evils. It prolongs the torment. In the 1600s, there was an English historian named Thomas Fuller. He had a different perspective. He said, if it weren't for hope, the human heart would break. Abraham Cowley, famous English poet, said this, hope. Of all the ills that men endure, the only cheap and universal cure. Hope is available to everybody. And he was alluding to the fact that it does something in our lives when we find true hope. And the Bible confirms that to be true. The book of Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We love deferred payments. That's a good thing in life. But deferred hope makes the heart sick. Hope needs to be realized. And so what we see is that hope can be helpful, but unmet hope can be problematic in the hearts of men and women. And so we look for a definition of hope. And here's a good definition. It's an expectation or a belief in the fulfillment of something desired. An expectation a belief in the fulfillment of something desired. We're looking forward to something. There's a sense that we need something, and there's this expectation that it is coming, that we'll receive it. That's what hope is. And what is evident among us is that life has left something to be desired. Hope is the expectation of something desired, but we're finding that life leaves something to be desired. And this isn't just a local or a temporal or an American phenomenon. It's not just because of the previous administration. And it's not just because of the recession. It is a common desire of humanity that transcends culture, time, place, and race. At one point or another, the heart of every man, the heart of every woman says, there's got to be something more than this. What am I looking forward to? Is this really the end of all things? You may have heard of a certain Russian author, Leo Tolstoy. He wrote that book, War and Peace. 
I never read. I was supposed to read it in school. I never read it. I went to school right here. Never read the book. But I read this about the author. that At the age of 50, he was on the verge of suicide. And he said that there were a series of nagging questions he was pondering that brought him to that point. He said this. He says, a question lying at the soul of every person. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. He continued and said, I'm asking this. What will come of what I'm doing today? Of what I do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why do I live? Why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? It can also be expressed thusly, he said, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me will not destroy? That was the question he pondered. That was the question that tormented him. Is there any meaning in this life that transcends, that goes beyond, that has eternal value? Or are we just like those hamsters, just running on the wheel and just spinning our gears? And what brings a point to a person, excuse me, to that point is a lack of hope. And facing, at the age of 50 he did, the reality of death. Because here's what death does. Death seems to rob life of its meaning. We sow in, we put in, and we build relationships, and we build stuff, and we amass stuff, and we amass a reputation, and death is sudden. I've known many people that have died. Very few of them planned on it. Very few of them. Death seems to rob the meaning from life. Death has this uncanny ability to dash our hopes and our dreams. There we are looking forward to something in this world. And here comes death. And we realize as we stand on the cusp of it that those things may never be attained may never be achieved. Death seems to us to be a robber, robbing us of meaning, robbing us of achievement, of desires and dreams. And death robs us of our loved ones. For these reasons, the Bible calls death an enemy. It's an enemy, the Bible says. And yet, it is an imminent enemy. We are, to be honest, death is always at the door. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. The Bible says our life is just a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Death is an enemy, but death is imminent. It seems to be at our door at times. And so we ask this question. Is there any meaning in our lives that the inevitable death awaiting us does not destroy? And what I'd like to suggest to you today is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ addresses the problem of death. Because what we see in the resurrection explicitly and literally is that Jesus conquered death. The Bible says that death is an enemy. That death entered in because of sin. That death wasn't the design of God. Death is the result of rebellion to God. And Jesus came to deal with death. And he died in our place on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And he rose from the dead and therefore conquered sin, death, and the devil. 
And because he did so, he is the Lord of life. And he has the power to give life. He is the one who gives initial life, and he is the one who can give eternal life. And because the American dream has in many cases brought a livelihood, but not real life, and because the American dream has in many cases brought prosperity, but not peace, because the American dream in many cases has brought solvency, but not resolve, there remains that expectation, that belief in the fulfillment of something desired. There is common among us a hope. And what is interesting about hope is that hope always finds an object. Hope doesn't do well in the intangibles, in the abstract. Hope always seeks to find an object. And that's what was so telling about this last election year. As many Americans found an object of hope in our current president. But I'm here to tell you today, and this is no deficiency of our president, I'm here to tell you today that you will never know life or peace or resolve until you put your hope in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the account of the resurrection of the Lord. It says in verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and he sat on it. A picture of victory. Verse 3, And his appearance was like lightning and his garments as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, the women, excuse me, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he was going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now there we have the actual historical account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I understand as I speak to you today that it can be difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The reason why that can be difficult to believe is it's not normal. Right? Hello? It's not normal. It's not a normative expectation. Hey, so-and-so died, but in a few days they're going to be just fine. We're not talking about something normal. We're talking about something supernatural. It can be hard to believe because most of us have never seen that. It's not normal. And so most people then think that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the burden of proof is on the Christian to give evidence that it actually happened. But that's not necessarily the case. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also puts a burden of proof on the non-believer and on the skeptic. You see, it's not enough just to say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to say you don't believe. You must come up with a historically plausible reason why you reject it. 
It's no more commendable to reject it for no reason than it is to believe it for no reason. And so really the burden of the proof of, of proof is on the non-believer, on the skeptic, the one who says, I don't believe it. If it didn't happen, let me ask you, why on earth are we here? I mean, it, it's Easter. <laughs> Easter's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. I, I mean, Columbus Day happens because there was a Columbus. Martin Luther King Jr. Day happens because there was a Martin Luther King Jr., thank the Lord. President's Day exists because there are presidents. Easter exists 2,000 years later because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, there never would have been a Christianity. Christianity is based on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The first Christians became such because they heard the message in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified that he had risen from the dead. When they heard that, they easily could have walked over the tomb to the tomb to verify whether or not that was true. Cravens Lane, our, our local uh, cemetery, is just about a mile in this direction. If I were to tell you, hey, so-and-so died three days ago, but now they're alive and you ought to follow them. First thing that you do is walk over and see whether or not they were still in that grave. If they were still in that grave, no bueno, no está bien, I'm not going to buy it. It's not happening. But if that grave was empty, now, now we have to reckon with this. You see, the historical text in front of us says that the grave was empty. The tomb was empty. And it also tells us, and the rest of Scripture says the same, that there were multiple, in fact, hundreds of eyewitnesses. We need to deal with these two facts, that there was an empty tomb and that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. If you only had an empty tomb, you don't necessarily have a resurrection, okay? Because someone could have stole the body, animals could have ate it, whatever. And if you only have eyewitnesses, you don't necessarily have a resurrection because if you see that the body's still in the tomb, then you probably had a hallucination, which many of us have, but not a resurrection. But if you have both an empty tomb and hundreds of eyewitnesses, then there are very few plausible explanations other than Jesus rose from the dead. And it is interesting that throughout history, not a single, listen to me now, because you might want to investigate this, throughout history, not a single shred of evidence has ever been presented in 2,000 years that suggests Jesus was still in the grave. The testimony of history is deafening when it comes to evidence against his resurrection. It just isn't there. I mean, if somebody would just show me the body, if somebody had just produced the body in Jerusalem, those initial days, it would have been over. We wouldn't be here. We'd all be at the beach surfing. If somebody had just shown somebody the body at any point in the game, it would have been all over. But nobody has ever produced it. The truth is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Can I get a witness? 
And here's why this matters. Because if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we have found a worthy object of hope. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then he really is who he claims to be. He really did what he claimed he would do, pay my price and your price on the sins. If Jesus has risen from the dead like he predicted he would do, then we have found a worthy object for our hope. We have found one in whom we can place our hopes and hang our hopes. We have found one where those desires are met. What are those desires? Well, those those desires are, are, are many. One is life. We want life to be meaningful. And we would like to think that life would be eternal. Jesus said that there is the promise of eternal life. And all who come to him believing that he paid the price for their sins on the cross and accepts him as Lord and Savior, risen Lord and Savior, will have eternal life. Meaning for you, the grave will not be the end. It is merely the beginning. And then this gives life meaning because the actions that we do in this life and don't do have an effect on eternity. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives longevity as long as it gets, eternity, longevity and meaning to life. What we also hope for in this life is love. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody needs to be loved. God made you to be loved. Because he made you to be loved, he loves you. And Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is positive proof that God loves you. If nobody else in the world loves you, he loves you. And he's pursuing you. That's why you're here today. Because he loves you and he's pursuing you. And he wants to remove from you the burden of shame, the burden of guilt, that sense of condemnation, and that sense of fear of what happens after the grave. And and, and that sense of meaninglessness. He wants to deal with those things. But you've got to come to him, and I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. What do we hope for? We hope for forgiveness. Anybody ever done somebody else really wrong? I have. Anybody ever been in that place where you're begging, please forgive me, just forgive me one more chance, forgive me. And how wonderful it feels when they forgive you and how horrible it feels when they don't. We all need forgiveness, most of all from God. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, God is offering us forgiveness today absolute forgiveness. He's willing to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, bury them in the deepest sea, remember them no more. That's what he does. He's a savior. He saves us from the penalty and the power of sin. We want life and we want love. We want forgiveness and those are found in Jesus. We want compassion. Everybody wants compassion extended toward them. We discover in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have a compassionate God. You know what else we hope for? In this life, we hope for justice. Because there's so much wickedness. There's so much senselessness. It's hard for our little corazones, our little hearts to even deal with it. And and so there is this longing, this hope for justice. And eternity, or excuse me, history has shown that we seldom find justice. In people. And yet there, there's this hope. Who's going to deal with the Hitlers? Who's going to deal with the murderers and the rapists and those who commit genocide? Who, who's going to deal? We hope for justice. 
And what the resurrection shows us is that Jesus is the boss. Jesus is El Jefe. And Jesus is the judge. And the Bible makes it very clear that in the end, he will judge. Now be careful. We want justice and we want judgment for them. Oh, Lord, get them. Oh, they're just dirty, rotten. Lord, deal with them. But when it comes to us, we want mercy. Don't give me justice, Lord, mercy. And the resurrection and the cross of Jesus Christ show us that he's a merciful God. And he's extending mercy to you today, but you've got to come to him. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a moment. But justice will be met by the person of Jesus Christ. In the end, he will deal with every injustice. He will right every wrong. We also hope for health. Anybody that's lost their health knows how precious that is. Did you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us that we too will be resurrected bodily and that we will receive a new body for eternity in glory that is not susceptible to sickness, to pain, to disease, to death. That just as Jesus had a resurrected body, the promise for the Christian is we will receive a resurrected body and those aches and those pains will be gone. I mean, you know, this old body, it's just starting to rot, isn't it? I can see it on some of you right now. It's just so funky. It's just starting to rot, this old body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us that we will be given a new glorified body, which means in eternity we will recognize loved ones. We will interact with loved ones. We will be reunited with loved ones. There will be community and interaction and fulfillment of relationship with freedom from corruption and sin and death and disease. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us. And finally, comfort. From time to time, we all need to be comforted. And what the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us is that no matter how bad, no matter how wrong this life gets and goes, the resurrection promises a future of immeasurable good. There is a life beyond the grave with God in glory, enjoying Him and each other and good things. And that comforts us in the day of trouble. In the time of difficulty, we can realize these difficulties are just a short time. I have eternity to be okay. I have eternity to do great. I have eternity to experience the goodness of God. The story's not over yet. It's a big book. The story ain't over yet. Don't lose hope. Sometimes you got to read the end of the book and see that Jesus Christ really does win. And we realize that in this lifetime, what causes injustice, insecurity, discomfort, guilt, shame, death, and inability to love and receive love is sin. And so sin is what has to be dealt with. And we deal with our sin by coming to Jesus. I mean, this is what many of us need to do today. We need to be bold enough, brave enough, humble enough to say, okay, Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't need to be convinced anymore. I do wrong things. But I'm willing to realize now that you're right and that you are love. And so you gave yourself on the cross for me. And what you achieved in the resurrection is your glory 
and my good, my comfort and my eternal life, my security and justice for humanity. But you need to be willing to come. And there's a whole lot of excuses when you're called to come to Jesus. Some of you think, no, I'm just in too much trouble with God. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate who says, I died for him or her. They can come. Some of you say, but I've sinned so much. The Bible says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice who pays for all of our sins. Some would say, but I feel so dirty. The Bible says that Jesus washes us clean and makes us brand new. Some of you say, I've been so unfaithful. Well, the Bible declares that God is a lover of the unfaithful because he's merciful. Some of you say, there's so much darkness in the world. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. Some of you say, I want to see more God. The Bible says that Jesus is the very image of God. Some say, I feel trapped and I feel snared in my life and in my sin and in these chains. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is a conquering lion who breaks every chain. That he is a deliverer. He's a savior. He's the one who sets us free. But you say today, I feel weak. I feel unable. Well, Jesus is the power of God, and he alone is sufficient for our lives. You say, well, I feel hopeless. Well, Jesus is hope and the hope of glory. You say, but you don't understand, Pastor Britt, I'm sad and I'm depressed. Well, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our difficulties, and by his stripes we are healed. You say, I'm sick and I'm tired. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is our rest and our joy. You say, I'm afraid of this whole thing. Jesus is your comfort. You say, I'm not sure I can make it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith and our lives. You say, you don't understand what's happened to me. I've been so ripped off. I've been so wronged. Don't you worry. Jesus is the avenger. You say, I'm just hungry for something more in this life. Jesus is the bread of life, he said. You say, I'm not sure which way to go in this life anymore. Jesus is the way, and he is the good shepherd who leads us. You say, I'm not sure what to believe. I don't know what's true. Jesus said of himself that he is the truth. You say, well, I don't know what to do about these particular situations in my life. The Bible says that Jesus is a great teacher and the giver of wisdom. Now, he'll help you to live. You say, well, I'm concerned about the whole world. I'm concerned about the whole world and its rulers and its wars. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is a coming king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. You say, well, I'm concerned about the devil. Jesus defeated the devil in the cross in resurrection. And you say, well, what do I do now? Now you come to Jesus. The band's going to come up and they're going to begin to play a song. I have to believe is the song. People, we have to believe today. There's no good reason not to believe that Jesus is the one who forgives our sins and gives us new life and eternal life and a fresh start in life. Some of you are here today and you know you need Jesus. This is your time. This is your hour. Here's your chance to make a move. As the band begins to play, you're just going to stand up and walk down here and there's going to be a few thousand people cheering you on. Others of you, I don't know how to say it other than to just say it, you're a backslider. You walked away from the Lord some time ago and you know it ain't working. You know life is better with Jesus. 
and you're here today because you know you need to come home. Jesus is home. I'm going to call you forward too. So as the band begins to play, if you know you need Jesus today, you know you need the forgiveness of sins, you know you want real life, eternal life, and you want a place to hang your hope, come to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Everybody here is for you, not against you. Come to Jesus. Jesus, draw everyone unto yourself that you would have today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come. Well, look who's come to Jesus today. You guys that are up here, good move. Best decision you'll ever make in your life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. This is your first time ever asking Jesus to forgive your sins. Just pray along in your heart with me. He hears you. If you mean it, He hears you. Maybe you've come to the Lord many times and you're coming home again. You just pray the same thing. He knows what we need. Jesus, I'm coming to you today. I'm not coming to a church. I'm not coming to a religion. I'm not coming to some group. I'm not coming to a man. I'm coming to Jesus. Jesus, you are the one I've been looking for. You are the hope that I've been longing for. Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I know I need you. And I know that sin is in the way. And I know that you died on the cross to forgive my sins. And so right now, and all that that means, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, wash me, cleanse me. I want to start over again. And I want to start over with you. I want to know you. I want to know new life, abundant life and eternal life. And so Jesus, I'm just simply coming and saying, I'm yours. Rule and reign in my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, listen, you guys that came up here, I'm going to give you my personal guarantee now that, that what happens next is not at all weird. Okay? There's some people that want to make sure you know what you did. They want to give you a Bible and a book. So you can go and study later on. Make sure you know, you know about this person, Jesus, that we've been talking about. And they just want to love you. If you need help, if you need prayer, they're there for you today. And they're there for you as long as you want them. But they're not going to push anything on you. They do want to give you the Bible so you can learn more about Jesus. And so they're going to walk with you out this way. See Big Ball Mexican? Raise your hand right there. Follow the Big Ball Mexican and you'll be back in just a minute. Salvation has come today. Today.